men of God that are on pastoral staff as well as just in our lay body that can minister the word. And so on Sunday nights, I have the opportunity many times, the overwhelming majority to just gratefully and thankfully be able to tap out, what I call it, pass the baton, allow them to minister the word. And occasionally, I like to go ahead and minister. And tonight, I really felt in my heart uh, about just sharing an emphasis on healing. I want to ask you a quick question. If you're here, and that's for tonight, and you like to be sick, Raise your hand. You may not believe in healing, but you always hope for it. Right? I guarantee you, it doesn't matter whether you have authentic faith in the covenant. Every person that's sick at least hopes for it. Right? My goal is to teach us to believe for it. So, let's come out tonight in expectation. Today, um, I'm just going to preach from this thought right here. This got down in my spirit today, and it's kind of pastoral slash evangelistic, meaning it's born of a pastor's heart for his congregation, for our fellowship. It's born of compassion for people. But also it's evangelistic in the sense of we need the power of the Holy Spirit of conviction and and awareness in our lives. And I've got a little question that I want you to ask. And now uh, this question is, and you could ask yourself, you could ask your neighbor, doesn't matter, but, but it's a simple question. It got down in my spirit this week, and I, just, I knew I had to just share it. It's this, it's this right here, what can cause you to turn? What could cause you to turn? I don't mean to your side. I'm talking about what can cause you to turn away. What is it that you could fall prey to that would take you away from the communion and the fellowship that you have with the Father and with the fellowship of the saints that you have right now. You better be very careful because the Bible says that you better consider yourself lest you also be tempted. Many times as I preach, I'm preaching to people that are simply one trial away from going the other direction. So I want to ask you this. You ask yourself, what can cause you to turn? Father, I love you. I humble myself in the sight of God. I pray today that as Joe has already said in this room, let preaching come easy in this house today. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. You can be seated. In order to arrive at a very particular passage of Scripture, I'm going to just slightly journey you through a couple that just was a prelude. And this thought came to my mind, what can cause you to turn from a scripture that we're going to look at in just a moment. And it, it's found in the Psalm, Psalm 78. Now, we're not going to go there just yet. We're going to go in just a moment to the ninth through the 11th verses. But just to set the backdrop for just a moment, the, the psalmist is Asaph. And so he's writing in recognition of Israel and their journey from Egypt. And if you take the time to read the entirety of the psalm, it's 72 verses. And the order of the psalm is just simply reminding Israel where they've been. They were in Egypt as slaves. They were brought through the wilderness journey. They took possession of the promised land. They were judged by judges for hundreds of years. God brought a king, Saul. He eventually rejected that king, which was from the lineage of Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin. And he set up, he set up David. He took him from the sheepfold and put him over the people of Israel. It's a beautiful psalm. It's filled with great exhortations. And 
In the first through the eighth verses, I'm just going to paraphrase just a few of the little thoughts for you. The psalmist just kind of says these words. He just says, he says, hear the word of God. I, I just love that. It, it's a moment that says, don't bypass this. Don't overlook it. Stop, put down what you're doing and, and pause to hear the word of God. Listen to what I'm about to tell you is what he was saying. And, and then he went and he just reflected for a moment. He said, this is so important. Make sure that you receive it in your heart and life and then you teach it to your children. And then the children's children said that the generation to come, that the generation to come might understand these things. And then he puts a little bit of a warning. He said, because you don't want to be like the generation that's gone in front of you because of some of their error as he was looking back to Israel's journey because we know that God called the people that were brought out of Egypt a stiff-necked people. A people that, he, he, that God always was trying to move them towards the promised land, but they were always trying to go back to where they came from. At any trial, any hint of trial, they were always asking themselves, why did we leave Egypt? Why did we allow this man Moses to be our captain? They, they even said, let us elect us a new captain to take us back to Egypt. They said, and this is in other Psalms, not this particular passage, but we remember the food that we ate. This is when they had manna falling from heaven. And, 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 and that manna had lost its flavor to them. It was just flavorless. And they said, you know, we remember the food that we had in Egypt. We remember the, the leeks and the onions. And we remember, this is in the Word of God, we remember the garlics and the melons and the fruits, the, the vegetables that they were able to grow while they were on the banks of the Nile River. And so they remembered the food of Egypt, but they forgot the chains of Egypt. And so the psalmist is just saying, don't forget. Don't forget this people. And then the ninth verse comes, and it just hits you right it just kind of hits you spiritually right in the gut. And that's where I, I want to draw your attention to, first of all, today. It says, and the children of Ephraim, ninth verse, the children of Ephraim, of, the, of this particular uh, household, this lineage of ancient Israel, they were armed and they were carrying bows. They were fully prepared for war. They were trained. Some would have been on horseback. Some would have been footmen. They had the ability to fight warfare, but they turned back in the day of battle. And that's just been in my heart this week of how in my mind when I contemplate this, I see a battlefield and I see uh, the children of Ephraim with the ability to wage effective warfare. Maybe this was during the possession of the promised land. The Bible doesn't give us the record of when the historical event took place. Some believe this was actually at the fall of the tabernacle. What I mean by the fall of the tabernacle, if you read the book of 1 Samuel, you'll find a very critical moment in Israel when the Philistines waged war and the Israelites brought the, taber brought the, the Ark of the Covenant out of the tabernacle because they just knew if they had the, the Ark with them, they could win the warfare and, and, and yet they were routed by the Philistines. Some believe that that's what this passage here is referring to. And so in my mind, I can see an army that's coming ahead and that's in front of them, that's coming to meet, not coming ahead, but coming to meet the children of Ephraim. And I see them mounted on horses. I see their men trained. I see them equipped. But something caused them to turn and go the other direction. 
Something caused them to lose a belief that if God was for them, then who could be against them? A promise made by God that it didn't matter how large the opposing army was that would meet them in battle. They may have had a larger army than Israel, but they didn't have a God that was greater than their God, right? And so, perhaps there was fear. I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. If we were to read the 10th and the 11th verse, he then puts it in this context. It's about the Word of God. They failed to hear and to heed the commandments of the Word of God. They failed to, to obey the Word of God. They turned their backs. They walked away. They went away from the Lord. And that's been in my spirit all week about turning back. I'm afraid that we've got men and women that are under the sound of my voice and certainly men and women in the American church that you have all the look of a Christian that's armored and ready for battle. But you're one step away from doing a 180 and going the other direction. You're armed. You look like you know what you're talking about. You're trained for this thing called spiritual warfare. You're aware of things that might be going on in the spiritual cosmos. But at the same time, you are so delicate in your heart, something could shift and you could lose your direction and you could go back instead of going forward. Let me give you another example of that just real quickly. The apostle Peter said these words in his epistle. It's in a similar context. Let me just paraphrase it for you for a moment. He said, it's better to have not known the way of righteousness. He said, it's actually better to have not known the way of righteousness than to have known the way of righteousness and to turn from, to turn from the holy commandment. He said, it's better that you weren't even raised in church. It's better that you hadn't even heard the Word of God. It's better that you hadn't even had a testimony of faith than to have had a testimony of faith and understood the Scriptures and know the commandments and understand righteousness and then turn and walk away from it. Here's what he made the comparison of. This is the familiar phrase. It's this passage in 2 Peter chapter number 2. He said the end result is this right here. He said the sow that was washed has returned to wallowing in the mire. The sow that was washed has been led back to the mud hole that it was delivered from. And so it's a warning to us, church family. These are written for our admonition for each one of us because there's such a pull. The world has such a pull on us. And now I want to take you for just a moment. Those were just staging you to go to a passage of Scripture for me to show you something that takes this to a deeper, more personal application rather than just a general application of Israel in the wilderness to Christians in the first century, unnamed Christians. I want to first ask you for a moment of time to consider an individual with me, a very familiar, one of the famous of all in the Scripture, and that is the Apostle Paul. Anybody that's ever read the New Testament in the book of Acts and the New Testament epistles, you understand that two-thirds of the New Testament was written by by his pen, but you also understand the challenges that came with being a foundational apostle that was going into Gentile cities and ministering the Word of God in pagan cultures. Matter of fact, matter of fact, the Bible says that when the, the angel of the Lord appeared to Ananias to go, tell Ananias to go and minister to Paul following his conversion on the Damascus Road, the Bible says, he said, and you've got to tell him what great things he will suffer for my name's sake. And so anybody that's ever read the New Testament epistles and also the book of Acts, you'll understand that preaching wasn't riding around in a Lexus for Paul. It wasn't having his, a billboard with his name on it or his face on it. It wasn't, uh, you know, a household name. It wasn't a prosperity gospel. 
that he preached. It was a penetrating gospel that often led him not just in revival, but also in riot. He suffered many things. If you, even from his own pen, he wrote in 2 Corinthians, read it later on your own, in 2 Corinthians 11, he said this. He said, I was beat many times. I was stoned many times. I know I'm preaching to folk that have been stoned before, but I'm not talking about the stoning that you were a part of. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about people picking up rocks outside the city at Lystra and leaving him for dead. They had so pulverized his flesh with rocks. He was imprisoned many times. He was shipwrecked at least three times. He spent a night in the day, a night and a day clinging to a piece of wood in the open ocean in the middle of the storm and night and darkness and sharks and, and, and the waves crashing all around him. And he's fretting for his very life. He said, I spent days in fasting without food. He said, I went through the cold and I went through the heat. I've gone through hunger and thirst and he faced ridicule. He did all that for the sake of the gospel. He did all that so you and I as Gentile believers would have a copy of the word of God so that we could read his letters to the church at Colossae or his writings to his young uh, son in the faith, Timothy, or his, his love for the people at Rome. We have this word that God gave him to deliver to the Gentile churches. And so, but the, and so we know that Paul suffered for the ministry, uh, but, he, but he labored. He said, the grace of God that was in me, he said, I labored more abundantly than they all. He did. But, you know, he didn't labor alone. He wasn't alone. God had raised up a group of men and women in that first century. And so he had fellow laborers. Let me call out a few. Barnabas, Silas, the beloved physician Luke. Those are Paul's own words. He called Luke, who wrote the uh, gospel and also the book of Acts, uh, Mark, John Mark that we see in the scriptures, his own two sons in the faith, Timothy, who received two epistles with his name attached, and Titus. We're familiar in the book of Acts that these were friends of his, Priscilla and Aquila. They were of a common trade. Paul not only labored with them in making tents, sewing and making tents in order to provide for his ministry because he was bivocational, even as a foundational apostolic uh, man of God. Uh, he was close in fellowship with Priscilla and Aquila. And so they're mentioned in the word of God. Epaphroditus is mentioned and Philemon and on and on it goes that are neighbored among the fellow laborers. But I, I want to show you one here and I'm going to flash some scriptures up there very quickly. It's in Philemon chapter number one, if we can, for a moment. I just want you to see this. In Philemon verse number one, he's, he's leaving a, he's writing to Philemon and he's, 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 he's writing his salutation and he's saying, fare thee well. And he said, I'm not the only one telling you, uh, God bless you, Philemon. So does Mark, who's my travel companion. That's probably John Mark and Aristarchus, who knows. And then certainly Luke, who he uh, called in another epistle, the beloved physician Luke, who he mentions also this one individual, Demas. Now, this is not the only time that he's mentioned Demas. Demas is a man that has traveled with the Apostle Paul in his apostolic journeys. And look what he calls him, my fellow laborers. These are men that he said, I have served God with together. 
Like David, when David penned the psalm and he said, we have taken sweet counsel and fellowship together. Let's, let's go to Colossians 4 and 14 if we can and put that on the screen so I can allow you to see that this is not the only reference of Demas in this passage of Scripture. In Colossians chapter number 4, verse number 14, it's, once again, he's numbered with the Luke. And in Luke's, he says that Luke also greets you, the beloved physician. Just hold that right there. Hold that right there. He said, Luke greets you, Demas greets you. So two times in Scripture, he, he, he's sending a greeting on behalf of this man that he's called a fellow laborer that's serving with him in the common faith. But this haunting verse here on the passage that's in, in front of you has just pierced my soul. So th this one here says, Luke is the beloved physician. I just want you to see this. And Demas greets you. But I want you to see the third time that he's mentioned here in 2 Timothy. So if you can go back to that one. Look at this one. So by the time the apostle Paul is writing to Timothy, he's now an aged man in the kingdom of God. If we were to read all of the fourth chapter of 2 Timothy, he even said that. He said, the time of my departure is at hand. I fought a good fight. I finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord will give me on that day, and not to me only, but to all those that love his appearing. That's right there in that same context, a passage of Scripture. And then as Paul begins to write in the ninth verse in front of it, he says, Timothy, I need you to come to me. Now, remember, he called Timothy his own son in the faith. He said, Timothy, I need you now. Maybe like, no, not like, maybe never before. Matter of fact, I need you to come to me quickly. Why? Why it's created such a need in the aged apostle's life that he's saying, Timothy, I need you to drop what you're doing. I need you to journey to where I'm at, and I need you to bring some resources. What would leave him in the place where he has to have Timothy vacate his pastorate for a few weeks to make the journey to where Paul is writing this epistle that he can bring him resources and encouragement and consolation? What? What is it? The 10th verse reveals it to us. Demas, who is known as a fellow laborer, who uh, served with Paul in the ministry in the, to the Gentile world. Look what it says about Demas. Demas has, Demas has forsaken me. Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. Now, when he references these other two, they just simply went in apostolic ministry. Titus and Cretans. But Demas didn't go in apostolic ministry. Demas walked away. Demas turned his back. Demas left the aged apostle without resources, without help. Demas felt a compulsion to go back to what he used to be. Demas felt a compulsion to go back to the world that he had been delivered out of, to go back into darkness. He had been in the light. He had been in the presence of God. He had helped serve the church. His name is captured in Scripture as being a fellow laborer with Luke and with Mark and with these, these men of God. But by the time the aged apostle is writing one of his final epistles, which is his letter to his son Timothy, he's saying, I'm in a desperate place. I'm in a strait. I'm lacking resources. I need fellowship. I need somebody to, 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 to encourage me. And the reason why is because the one that I expected to go with me through the hardships has now turned his back. And he's walking away. That's a haunting verse of Scripture. That's how Demas will forever be remembered in the pages of the Word of God. As a man that served with God, served with Paul in his service of God, but he fell prey. And I'm telling you, church family, today, when I read this, the word forsaken means to be left behind in a bad sense, to abandon. In this passage, when Paul went farther and he used the word loved, that's not filio in the Greek, which is a friendship love. It's agape. It's agape. His affection that should have belonged to God 
He's now given his affection to the things of this world. A church family, this is real. This is just not a figment of uh, someone's imagination. This is actually an historical record to the foundational men and women of the church that established a precedence for you and I to believe that handed us, that handed us the gospel. But not all continued to believe. Not all continued to run the race that they had begun. Something caused Demas to turn. And the reason I mention that to you today is because if it could happen to Demas, it can happen to you. Listen, there should be no arrogance in this house today. We should humble ourselves. The Bible says examine yourself whether or not you're in the faith. We've got to learn to guard ourselves. I've been asking myself these questions. I've been saying, what would cause, if, what, if, if it was the sway of the world that caused Demas. Some believe in a great falling away in the final days before Jesus comes. Hello? We can look around the American culture today. JoJo's made the statistic three weeks ago when we had the young men and ladies that are a part of our church family from 18 through 25 stand in front of you. And he shared the, the actual statistic that three out of every 10 students that come through a, a student ministry in America within 10 years, they will have from their faith. What's it caused? What's caused it? There has to be a root. There has to be something at work that's pulling people away from something that they once believed in. So, so in my heart, I prayed about this. And I want to say this to you today. I believe that faith should be an active, is an active force and that's what should define you. I don't think you should be defined by your job. I don't think you should be defined by the size of your family or the resources that you have. I think you should be defined by what you believe. Come on. I believe that faith is an active force. Paul said, I am what I am by the grace of God. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who died and gave himself for me. I recognize that in him I live and in him I move and in him I have my very being. Right? He's the potter, I'm the clay. Mold me and make me, Lord, have thine own way. I am not my own, I've been bought with a price. Therefore, I will glorify God in body and in spirit. Right? If you recognize these things, you become conformable, not to the world, but to the word. Right? And you want to be defined by what you believe. Not always by what you do. What you do should shoot forth from what you believe. Right? It should be the byproduct, the fruit of what you believe. You say this, if faith doesn't define you, let me say this. If your faith is not your defining point, it shouldn't be your attire. It shouldn't be the color of your hair. It shouldn't be your occupation or your career, whether you're a coach or whether you're a businessman or whether you're in the military. If that's not what, if faith doesn't define you, I'm going to challenge the authenticity of your faith. I'm going to challenge that because I believe you need to examine yourself whether you are in the faith. So when I prayed about this, I'm going to just tuck away four things. When I prayed and I said, God, what can cause? What can cause a man to, to turn? What can cause a woman to turn? What can cause the young adults that are under the sound of my voice uh, to turn until we lose fellowship with them? Until they lose fellowship with perhaps the Father, but certainly with the body of Christ. I'm going to just share these four things briefly today. These are the things that I believe God laid on my heart to give you as your pastor. And so I'm going to preach it with a clear conviction here today. 
Number one, persecution. It's not always easy to do the right thing. Hello? What I'm talking about, persecution, you can close your mind and you can contemplate what does that mean. It might be ridicule. It might be being ostracized from a family or from people at work. It might be losing your job. It might be going through difficult seasons. It might mean violence. Hello? When you think about the first century church, you cannot think about the first century church without thinking of them enduring persecution. The first wave of persecution did not come upon the first century church by the hands of the Romans. The first wave of persecution came by the Judaizers, those that were steeped in Judaism, that saw that this was a sect of Judaism called the sect of the Nazarenes because they followed a man that they had condemned to death and handed over to Pontius Pilate and they believed that they had silenced his voice but when that seed fell to the ground, out of the ground came many voices. And so now they're trying to snuff out every voice. And so the persecution, read the book of Acts, the 8th chapter, how that persecution came upon the church. Read the 12th chapter. You see the mounting persecution that came upon the church. And we can read many of the epistles. The epistles are written to encourage people who are right there at the tipping point because it gets hard. The pressures start to mount. When these great systems start to put pressure on you, religious institutions put pressure on you and begin to attempt to define your faith for you or to demand that you don't practice your faith or to exercise your faith. So we see that both in religious setting, but we also see it in the state setting. As the gospels continue to go forth, persecution by the end of that first century was not held by the hands of the Jews, but was held by the Romans. And history is filled with the trauma that those first century Christians endured. How that many lost their life in great amphitheaters for the entertainment of the Roman people. But I tell you what, but they kept, many kept the faith. But some teetered. Some had not sold themselves out for the cause of Christ. So I want to I exhort you today, we have to be mindful of persecution, whether it comes from religious or state. In our modern days today, the greatest religious uh, persecution comes from Islam. Read it, read it, follow it around. It has for hundreds of years to the Christian church. The blood of martyrs has been spilt hundreds of thousands of times at the end of a jihadist sword. But we also see state persecution. You know what? You and I enjoy a measure of freedoms here in America that I'm going to talk about in just a moment of time. But you know, around the world, it's not that way for many people. And the state puts pressure on them, such as in China or North Korea. But let me also throw in America here today just a minute, and that is our religious freedoms are narrowing. More and more pressure is coming upon the church. More and more pressure to define what you believe and how you should live your life out before God. And so I want to just encourage you today, you've got to know what you believe and why you believe it. Did you know we know that some, like the children of Ephraim, turned back in the day of battle? Concerning persecution, let me just tell you this. Jesus said, if they persecuted me. So listen, when you sign up to be a follower of Christ, let me just say this. It's more than just a free ticket to heaven. You may have to endure persecution and be faithful to the very end. 
And, and we don't know what the future holds. We may one day ourselves face a jihadist here in America. Or it may not even be a jihadist. It may be somebody in, uh, in a public office. It could be the state. It could be, there's a lot of things that can don't, don't close your eyes and pretend that that's never existed. But I want you to know this. If they persecuted Jesus, they're going to persecute you. But Jesus said this. He said, you're going to be hated by all for my name's sake. See, the gospel is salt. The gospel is light. The light shines into the darkness. And not everybody wants to embrace the light. Jesus said he came, John said about Jesus, he came into his own and his own received him not. And so it's not always going to be a cupcake in the kingdom of God. And so I think we need to, we need to lift our, our heads and say, you know what? I'm t- I don't want to be like the children of Ephraim. I don't want to turn back in the day of battle. If it gets hot, then I want to trust that God's going to keep me. Jesus said this. He said, you're going to be hated by all men for my name's sake. He said, but not a hair of your head's going to be lost. And in your patience, possess your souls. I believe God will keep you even to your dying breath. I believe he'll never leave you nor forsake you. Demas walked away from Paul and forsook him. But I want you to know there's one in heaven today that will not leave you and he won't forsake you. He'll be there with you. He's a friend that's sticking closer than a brother. I love that first century group of apostles because when the Sanhedrin told them and said, you can't teach or preach in the name of Jesus. I don't want to hear any more sermons. You can't address the issues of our culture. You can't speak those things. Here's what they said. Whether it be right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God, you judge. I'm telling you the days are coming as more and more uh, of of some of the things that have taken place in the last 20 years begin to mount in America against religious uh, freedoms. I want you to know more and more pressure is going to come upon the church uh, to censor our sermons to, uh, uh, to a religion of the state. But let me tell you, there's a group of men and women that sold themselves out a long time ago. And I tell you what, I believe their voice is going to be loud. It's going to be strong. It's going to be bold. And it's going to be authoritative. We don't care whether it comes from the White House or from the courthouse because we got a mandate from heaven to preach the uncompromising truths of the Word of God. I tell you, we're cut from the same cloth of the apostles, and the apostles said, you judge us whether it's we should obey you or God. We're going to obey God, and I hope, I hope when we're faced with persecution, we have the courage that they did. Number two, what can cause you to turn? Persecution can certainly cause you to turn. But deception through education... Deception, let me just make this, Uncle Billy Quarry, my dear brother-in-law, preached a message here a few months ago or a year ago. He said, sometimes you got to state the obvious. I'm going to state the obvious. The public education system in America has been compromised. That's just the truth. I don't, this is not anything about a political, that's just the truth. It has been compromised. Let me just say this. The myth of evolution has been forced upon the last two generations of students to whether they even have an acknowledgement of God. Evolution has taught the spontaneous combustion of life without God. That's what, it's at the heart of it. But let's go a little bit farther. Even in the church, people that I know and love and have good relationship often commingle evolution with the Bible. But here's the danger of that. And I'll tell any of you this in a private conversation or a public conversation. The danger of this is when you co-mingle evolution with the Bible, you will eventually arrive at the place where you yourselves begin to question the authenticity of the Word of God. 
But let me tell you today, I believe the word of God. I believe the scriptures. That's the basis of our faith. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. Did you know there will come a day when the heavens will be folded up like a garment and the earth itself will be put back on a shelf. But Isaiah said, but the Word of our God shall continue and remain forever. This Word is a revelation of the mind and the heart and the will of God. It's a revelation of where we were in the bosom of God and where we're going in the consummation of all time. I thank God for His Word today. I want to say this, true science doesn't contradict the truth. But unfortunately, many modern science books are nothing more than a means to propagate atheism or at the worst, agnosticism. I have a question. I know I don't necessarily have a bunch of evolutionists here in the sound of my voice. But I have a question that God himself asked years ago, hundreds of years ago, even thousands of years ago, to a godly man that was struggling in his faith. That man was Job. And when Job began to to question the validity of God, God had a question for Job. He said, where wast thou, Job, when I laid the foundation of the world? Where were you at, Job, when he said, when I spread it out like like a line being drawn? Where were you at when I put the water in the seabed and I said, you'll go this farther and you won't go any farther? Where were you at, Job? You know, only the fool says in his heart there is no God. Did you know creation itself testifies to us of the validity of the knowledge of God? It's a reflection of the creator. So where is that revelation? Men need to know. Men need to know. So unfortunately, people have gone through the education system. Our young adults for the last two generations have gone through the education system and they've been told there is no God. You're here just as a a, a result of some type of accident that happened when there was nothing. But see, I want to stand against that today that I believe that we existed in the heart and the mind of God, an eternal God who so loved us that before he created us, he already had a plan for our life because he's alpha and omega. He's the beginning and the end. And before he ever formed you and created you, he already created within you the ability to be the person God's called you to be. He finished you before he even started on you. And he consummated the worlds before he ever formed the very first Adam. He did. And I'm telling you, he holds the world in the palm of his hand today. And the Bible says by his finger, he will carve the riverbed. That's the God that I serve. He's Elohim to the Hebrew. That means he's the creator. He was there in the beginning. And let me tell you, write it all you want in the science books. He will be there in the end because he is God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So don't turn your back on God. Don't allow these myths to get into your mind. Go to what the word of God says. Believe it. Walk in it. Jesus did. Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone. But by every word. Oh, don't hack it up and dice it up to fit your need. But by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Thank God for his word. I'm preaching a lot better than y'all shouting, but that's the normal order of business here at this church. Number three, and I'll be getting close to closing. This is a tough one. Say, Pastor, where are you going with this sermon? I'm going because people are turning. People that one day embrace God this way are falling prey to seduction and deception and they're turning and they're walking away. Pain and trauma causes a lot of people to turn, be shipwrecked in their faith. Hello? Amen. Let me say this. Life is not always easy. Come on. Life can be hard. 
and discouraging. Once again, I'll state the obvious, but bad things often happen to good people. Things that you just bow your head and you question. People go through divorce, an abandonment by a spouse, a tragic loss of life of a loved one. We don't have often answers why a child gets a terminal disease. Some people under the sound of my voice have endured the horrors of war. They've saw it firsthand. They've been in Afghanistan and Iraq. They've been there with bloodshed all around them. They've seen famine and pestilence. As a result, many are wounded, scarred, and rejected. It's a tough place to be. Sometimes your faith is hanging by a thread. Job said, it's by the skin of my teeth. I think it's a critical moment in the life of Job when he had gone through trauma. I don't know if anybody's ever had a day like Job that had. A day when he lost all of his resources. His houses were taken from him. His animals were lost in the field. And the desperate news that all ten of his children died when a tornado swept through, destroyed the house that they were in. And he got up sorrowing the next morning only to look down on his own body. And he had sores all over his body. He had boils from the top of his head to the sole of his feet. And he took off his clothes. He was a wealthy man one day before. It was like Black Friday, 1929. He was a wealthy man one day before. He was destitute the following day. And he sat in sackcloth and ashes. He took off the, his garments and he put on sackcloth and ashes. And his wounds hurt so bad that the Bible says that he took a piece of a pot sheared, a clay pot sheared, and he scraped the wound. He scraped the boil to just get some relief. And I'll tell you what, the pain and the trauma was so bad that his wife was going through the same trauma with him and she struggled in her faith and she looked at Job and she said, Job, she said, does you even now still retain your integrity? Even now, even now, she said, Job, why don't you just curse God and die? It's what pain can produce inside you. But Job, from a pile of ashes, with his sores running fluids, lifted up his eyes at his wife. And he said, woman, you speak like a foolish woman. Because he said, the Lord giveth and the Lord has taken away. But blessed be the name. But blessed be the name. Whether I'm on the mountain worshiping God or whether I'm in the darkest hour of my life, it's not going to change the truth. Blessed. Be the name of the Lord. And Job would later say, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. You can still trust God. Why can you trust God even when you've gone through such trauma that it's hard for me to even reflect the trauma that you have gone through? Because there's one called a man of sorrows who knows your every hurt. The Bible calls him a man of sorrows, and he was acquainted with grief. And I'm not talking about Job sitting in sackcloth and ashes, but I'm talking about the one that he could see prophetically who was yet to come. Because Job said, he said, after I die and worms destroy this body, he said, but in my flesh, I'm going to see God. Because I know one thing, Job said this, in the 19th chapter of the book that bears his name, he said, I know my Redeemer lives and he shall stand on the earth in the latter day. And let me tell you, that Redeemer that he saw was none other than the one. 
that loved you and from the cross called Calvary with blood flowing out of his side, blood flowing out of his head, blood flowing out of his hands and his feet. He loved you. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He had been beaten. He had been lied about. He had been spit upon. They had stripped the very hair out of his beard. But he loved you enough to endure it on the cross so that you could have life and that life with the Father more abundantly. And I want you to know you may be tempted to turn away from him, but he will never turn his back on you. He said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Daryl joined me on the platform today. So I want you to know no matter what you're going through, I'm telling you, God can bring you through it if you'll trust in him. Don't turn away from God in your pain. Turn to God in your pain. You'll find a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And lastly today, at right after I heard somebody's phone beep, it's 12.01. Number four, to close the message out, I've been preaching for 40 minutes. The temptation of the world. See, I've shared with you, I prayed about these things. I'm a pastor. I care about people in our fellowship. And I just want to see people be rooted and grounded in what they believe and be able to endure. And, and, I, and I don't think the church, I don't think our generation of the church has adequately prepared the people in our, in our congregations for trial and temptation. We've made, it, we've made church sound like just this cool social gathering, you know. You know, you used to be in the club, now you're in the church. And I tell you what, that's, that's not what it is. It's about being called out of darkness. You are distinctly different from the person who does not know Jesus. And I'm not saying to judge them in any capacity. I'm saying be aware of what he's done in you. He saved you and he redeemed you. But the world has a pull to it. It's like a vortex. It just pulls and suctions and it, it tries to pull you right back in. You know, you begin to follow God, but I'm telling you, the world is still trying to pull you back, suck you back in it. And you say, Pastor, what do you mean by the word world? Remember what Paul wrote to Timothy? He said, Tim, he said Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. That word world in Greek means age. It's the culture in which we live. It's a life and a lifestyle gratifying your flesh rather than serving God can I be honest here today let me tell you what it means in our culture it's the lure of a carnal appetite it's lust, it's greed it's a love for money it's covetousness it's open sexuality it's partying and drunkenness can I be honest in here today See, God's called you out don't stay there don't stay in that sorrow. Don't pillow your head in that and those things. It's the drug culture. It's pulling and pulling and tugging. And many that had faith in God, many that made professions of faith in God have been pulled to that world. You say, well, oh, I can't. Jesus was tempted on a mountain. The Bible says the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of this world. Everything that he could lust for in his flesh. Any appetite that a man could be, that would, would need to have satisfied through a carnal means was presented to him. And I'll tell you, it pulls many that are in the faith. I'll just be honest, I'll go one step farther than this. This church, First Assembly, has an 81-year history. And I've been the pastor for 13 years of this great fellowship. 
But if every person just in the 13 years that I've been the pastor of this assembly that's made a profession of faith in Christ, that we've seen lift their hands here, that we've seen pray here, that we saw get water baptized there, or that sang on this stage here, if every person that's still in this community that made that profession of faith were here today, we'd have two services and be moving to the bypass. The world has pulled them. He said, Pastor, well, it's not going to happen to me. It happened to Demas. It happened to Demas. Demas was working with Paul daily, daily, but the pull of the world. So don't set yourself up in spiritual arrogance. Always consider yourself lest you also be tempted. Let me tell you, don't live so close to the world. Don't live so close to that life and that lifestyle that God brought you out of. Make a decision to follow him. Come on. Live different. Be different. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So I encourage you today as I close. Here's a passage of scripture. I'm going to not go to one of those. But the final verse of scripture that I want to read to you is this. It's Hebrews 10 and 25. And I've preached from this many times. And I usually do so as a point of sometimes frustration, pastor, heart because people are you know kind of neglecting church and and pastor burton said it was the church at the lakeside assemblies what he used to call it that meant he was in jacksonville and when there'd be a lot of people at church they'd be up in on the lake somewhere so he called it lakeside assembly and so pastors you know we wrestle with that about faithful attendance and we've used this verse of scripture to try to teach sometimes to coerce hopefully to never manipulate this passage here says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. And I've always kind of just more or less made, don't be negligent about God's house. But when I studied this out this week, I saw that's the same word, forsake, in the Greek that Paul used when he spoke about Demas. Does that make... So, so now look at it different. I'm not talking about missing church every now and then to go on a special trip with your family or something like that. Everybody does that. I'm talking about forsaking, turning your back, walking away. The writer here is warning us, don't, don't abandon, don't turn away from. Some have, the manner of some is. Some have, but it doesn't have to be you. Here, look at this. Last thing right here. But exhorting one another. Did you know what the word exhortation or exhort means in the Greek? It means to come to one's aid. And so I thought, Father, how can I close this service off today? And I thought, you know, there, there are four things that I mentioned that I believe that we have to guard ourselves from that puts us in a precarious position where we are more vulnerable to turn away and be, be pulled back into the world. And the only way I believe that you can find true help is to be honest and to say you know what I need somebody to come to my aid just to say I just need help it's not easy the walk of faith I'm walking you know I'm not on cruise control some people seem to be in their faith they're just on cruise control others saying brother I got this thing in first gear four wheel drive and I'm going uphill backwards it's not easy right and if that's you, you can be honest and say, I just need people to pray with me. I just need to know somebody's in my corner. 
there to strengthen me. So our heads are bowed and our eyes closed at 12.05 today.